With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Stamps.com. Today's episode is also sponsored in part by Squarespace. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and as always, I want to thank you for downloading this episode today. This episode is going to be broken down into three segments. In the first segment, I'm going to discuss the Netflix docuseries Making a Murderer. I've had hundreds of requests to discuss my opinion on Stephen Avery's case. So today I'm going to take a few minutes and just give you the Reader's Digest version of my opinion of the documentary in the case. If you haven't already watched Making a Murderer and you intend to, you may want to skip ahead 5 or 10 minutes in this episode because there will be some spoilers. Or hit pause and go watch the docuseries and I'll see you in 10 hours. In the second segment of today's episode, we're going to break down the elements of the crime that Kenny Snow was accused of committing. I've started to get some of the documentation back from the Smith County authorities. I don't have everything yet, but I believe I have a remedy to that and we'll be discussing it at the end of this episode. But what I do have is enough information to give you the basic elements of the case. I've gotten from the Smith County Sheriff's Department the witness statements from the day of the crime. After we discuss the elements of the case, we'll take a quick break, and we'll finish today's episode with breaking down clearly Kenny's allegations of what happened after he was arrested on January 30th, 1997. So that's the plan, and let's go ahead and get started with my assessment of the Making a Murderer case the murder of Teresa Halbach, and the conviction of Stephen Avery. Making a murderer caught the attention of millions of Americans after it was released in December of 2015. Once the series ended, America was up in arms that this innocent man had been convicted twice. So the big question that everyone is asking me is whether or not I believe that Stephen Avery is guilty. And I'll tell you up front that I have no idea if Stephen Avery is innocent or guilty. I haven't dug that deeply into the case to be able to tell one way or the other. But my opinion of the documentary and what I found out by doing some quick research after it was over is that the documentary was very one-sided. Avery very well may be innocent. But when I was watching the series, the first thing that caught my attention was that everything was so one-sided. By watching the way that it was produced, you think that there's only one side to this story, which always gives me pause, because there's always more than one side to a story. There's usually three, your side, my side, and the truth. While I thought the series was incredibly intriguing and was very well produced, I believe that the producers were very biased in the way they presented it. They left certain details out that leaves me questioning the whole thing. The first thing that I noticed was the big reveal that they found the vial of blood with the hole punctured in the top of it. 
In the documentary, this was made to be clear evidence that someone had stuck a hypodermic needle into that vial and withdrew that blood and used it to plant Stephen Avery's DNA on the crime scene. Well, there are a couple of key elements to that allegation. First of all, there was the fact that the evidence seal was broken on that blood evidence. That is a huge deal. There should be chain of custody logs. Those evidence containers are sealed for a reason. If that seal was broken, it should be documented why it was broken, when it was broken, and who broke it. And then it should be resealed, and that should be documented as well. If those documents were not produced, that is a huge deal, and it leaves a lot of questions. The second element to that piece of the case was the hole in the top of the vacuum tube, and this is what gives me concern. Anyone that has anything to do with the medical profession, or anyone that's ever given blood for that matter, knows why that hole was in the top of that vial. The vials used to draw blood are known as vacuum tubes or vacutainers. And the way they're used is this. The nurse or doctor or whoever punctures a needle into your vein. On the outside of that needle is what looks like a cup with another needle in it. So it's a straight line from your vein right out to the end of that needle. The vacutainers are kept under a vacuum with a rubber stopper on top. The technician then takes that vacutainer and punctures it over that needle, and the blood will flash back into the vacutainer and fill up with blood. Technicians use this method when they need to fill up multiple vials of blood, because they can keep that needle in your vein and take several of these vacutainers and just punch them onto that needle and fill them up. They reseal themselves when you pull the container off of the needle. I have to believe that the producers of the docuseries at some point had figured out why that hole was in the top of the container. The fact that that information was never disclosed on the show just made me realize that this was clearly a documentary that was meant to be about one person. It was about Stephen Avery. And it was one-sided. And that's okay. They have the right to do that. But it's just something that you should know when you're trying to determine in your mind whether or not Stephen Avery is guilty or innocent. That the intent of that program was to only show Stephen Avery's side of the case. From what I've read from court documents that other people have posted online, there was other evidence that wasn't presented in the documentary as well. Apparently, there was also DNA evidence recovered from under the hood of Teresa Halbach's car. Apparently, one of Brendan Dassey's statements, he said that Avery had opened up the hood and disconnected the battery cables. Now, it seems pretty obvious that the Manitowoc Sheriff's Department was not on the up and up. The whole part about them finding the key on the seventh time of searching the room in a place that had already been searched six other times, obviously a suspect. The fact that only Stephen Avery's DNA was found on that key is also very suspect. It seems not only improbable, but impossible that at least Teresa Halbach's DNA would have been on that key as well. So I'm not saying there wasn't corruption here. It seems to be very clear to me that there was. But that also doesn't necessarily mean that Stephen Avery is innocent. There are also supposedly reports of inmates that served time with Avery who claimed that he talked about building some kind of torture chamber when he got out and said something about assaulting women. But as you know from what we've seen from other cases, I don't put all that much weight into criminal informants inside of a jail. So many times those statements proved to be coerced. On the flip side of the coin, one of the orders from the judge at the beginning of the trial was that Stephen Avery's defense was not allowed to present any alternate suspects during the trial. I don't quite understand why that wouldn't be allowed. It's a common defense used at trial in a lot of criminal cases, but in this case they weren't allowed to do so. And there were apparently four other suspects that the defense believes may have had something to do with the crime. 
Two of those suspects testified in the trial and served as each other's alibi. One of them was reported by his co-workers as showing up to work looking frazzled and possibly having blood on his clothing. The other one was known to be on the property when Teresa was there, and when he was brought in for questioning, he allegedly had scratch marks all over his back. None of these things make either of these two a murderer, but it certainly makes them possible suspects. But that information was never allowed to be presented in trial. There's a lot more to the case, and I haven't done enough research or gotten into the case enough to be able to tell you one way or the other what happened. I would highly recommend that if you haven't seen it, to go ahead and watch the documentary. It's fascinating, and there is certainly a ton of misjustice that was brought out in that show. But as far as the case itself, many people have asked for me to take it on as my next case. And I guess I'll just take this opportunity to let you know that that's not my intention to work on the Stephen Avery case. A big part of the reason for that is the thing that makes what we're doing worthwhile is that we find cases that no one's heard about. We find the people that have been forgotten that are rotting away in prison with no one left to fight for them. In Stephen Avery's case, there are already hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people fighting for him. It's probably one of the most high-profile cases that our country has seen in a long time, with maybe the exception of the with maybe the exception of Adnan Syed. Making a murderer has already done the job of bringing this case to the public's eye. And there are already all of these people, along with attorneys, that are getting involved, putting together petitions, and fighting for Stephen Avery. I know that a lot of you wanted me to go into a lot more depth on that case. Unfortunately, as it stands right now, I just don't have the time with all the other cases that I'm working on. If you are interested in a little bit more of an in-depth conversation about it, I actually interviewed on a local radio station here this week. I was on a show called The Jason Lee and Cluck Show, and we discussed the Stephen Avery case along with some other things for about two hours. They are going to be sending me an MP3 file of that entire interview, and when they do, I'll go ahead and put it up as a bonus episode. So for anyone who's interested in listening to that, you'll have the ability to do that. But I just don't want to waste any more time on this podcast discussing it because we have other things to do. For me, right now, my focus is on Smith County and Kenny Snow. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Earlier this week, and even some today, I've started to get files in from Smith County. The Smith County Sheriff's Department sent me today some preliminary information with hopefully more to come. And with all the negativity we've heard about Smith County since we've started this case, I did want to take a quick second and thank the Smith County Deputy District Clerk. The clerk's office has been very helpful in the last couple of days. We've spoken on the phone a few times and exchanged some emails about which documents I need. 
She told me that there are nearly 2,000 pages in the stack of documents with Kenny Snow's cases. At a dollar a page, she offered to just hold the files out and keep them on her desk until next week when I make a trip to Smith County and let me come in and thumb through them and make copies of the files that I need. And on that note, about the time you're hearing this, I'll be getting on a plane and heading to Texas. The agency that I've had the most difficulty getting information from has been the Tyler Police Department. Like I said, Smith County has at least sent me some information. The clerk's office has been extremely helpful, but the Tyler Police Department has not been helpful at all. I mentioned on the show last week that they had sent me a response to my FOIA request telling me that they have no documentation at all on Kenny Snow's case. The letter said that all the documents on the case would be held at the Smith County Sheriff's Department. But the Smith County Sheriff's Department only has documentation for Smith County cases. The aggravated robbery charge occurred in the city of Tyler, Texas, and was investigated by the city of Tyler, Texas. I sent an email earlier this week to the chief of police of Tyler. In that email, I also attached a few documents that I did have access to with the Tyler Police Department letterhead on them. And I posed the question as to why the Tyler Police Department has no copies of these files when they were clearly generated by his department. The police chief, a man named Gary Swindle, sent me a short email back saying that the police chief that was in charge of the Tyler PD at the time of these crimes is now deceased, and he would have to do some research on the case before he can comment. The Tyler Police Department is going to be one of the stops on my trip next week, and hopefully while I'm there, I can get a little bit more information on this document situation. So for now, in this segment, I want to break down the facts of the case. All the allegations that I've told you about that Kenny Snow has made all occurred after he was arrested. But I'm sure you're all wanting to know what exactly happened. What was the original charge? On January 21st, 1997, there were two robberies that occurred in and near Tyler, Texas. Right around noon, just north of Tyler in a town called Swan, located in Smith County, according to a man named Bill Cole, who owned the Bill's Used Tire Shop, a man entered his business and asked about a 14-inch tire. Mr. Cole says that he asked the assailant what size exactly. The assailant told him that he needed a 195-70 tire. Cole says that he pointed out the tire, and the man pulled out a can of mace and sprayed him in the face. Cole says that the mace temporarily blinded him in his right eye, and he fell to the ground. According to the detective's notes, he said to the police that the assailant said, Don't move, don't move, give me that money. Cole says that he normally carries the company's cash in a Ziploc bag in the pocket of his shirt. He told the police that he believes the assailant was familiar with the fact that he kept his cash there because he wasn't hesitant at all. He knew right where it was and told him to give it to him. According to these records, the assailant made off with $167 in cash. Mr. Cole said that after the assailant started walking out the door, he quickly got up and went to the back room to get his gun. But by the time he got back to the front door, he saw the man driving away in a small red four-door sedan. The sedan was headed south on I-69, headed back towards Tyler. The victim, Mr. Cole, described the suspect as a black male with a muscular build and a square jaw. He said that he was in his mid-20s to 30s, very muscular with a slim waistline. He said that he estimated the suspect to be around 5 foot 10 inches tall. The suspect was wearing a baseball cap that was either dark blue or black in color and had a green and yellow colored shirt on. Mr. Cole described it as the colors of the Green Bay Packers. He says the suspect was also wearing dark-colored pants and tennis shoes. So to summarize this first robbery, around noon on January 21, 1997, 
A lone black male with a muscular build and a square jaw approximately 5 foot 10, wearing a dark colored ball cap, a shirt with the colors of the Green Bay Packers, dark pants and tennis shoes, walked into Bill's used tire shop, asked about some tires, and then sprayed the owner in the face with mace, stole $167 out of his shirt pocket, and fled in a small red four-door car, and headed south towards Tyler, Texas. Smith County Sheriff's Deputy Bobby McGee was the first to respond to the scene and had began the investigation and taken these statements. The supplemental report says that at approximately 2.30 p.m., a Lieutenant Jason Waller learned of a robbery that had occurred around noon at Bill's used tire. It also says that the information was passed along to him that it was a lone black male between 20 and 30 years of age at approximately 5 foot 10 inches tall and weighing around 180 pounds. Something that should be noted here is that according to Kenny Snow's boxing record, he is exactly 5 foot 10 and 180 pounds. This description first kind of caught my attention because it's very specific for a man who had had a very brief encounter with an assailant long enough for him to ask for a 14-inch tire, turn around, and then get sprayed in the face with mace, which he says blinded him in one eye. So it just struck me as odd that the description of height and weight were so specific. 5 foot 10, 180 pounds. That's what led me to pulling Kenny Snow's boxing record to look at his stats and how he was listed back in 1997. And like I said... Exactly, 5 foot 10, 180 pounds. On the next day, the 22nd of January, Lieutenant Waller learned that another robbery had occurred inside the city limits of Tyler at an automotive shop. This is the robbery I mentioned a couple of episodes back at Ricky Dealer's Used Cars. So the information that I have on that robbery is limited to the supplemental reports by the Smith County Sheriff's Department from information that they had gathered from the Tyler PD. On the 22nd, Lieutenant Waller met with Tyler Police Major Crimes Unit Detective Bobby Van Ness. He had been assigned the follow-up in that case. According to these reports, in the evening of the 21st, so the same day that the first robbery occurred, a man by the name of Juan Martinez is the victim in this case. Mr. Martinez states that he was attacked and robbed of $2,200 in cash along with other personal items. According to this report, the assailant in this case was described as being approximately 6 foot tall and weighing around 180 pounds. He was dressed in a red and black checked flannel shirt, jeans, and a ball cap. Now at this point, I don't know exactly what time this robbery occurred. I only know that it occurred the same evening as the noon robbery that occurred at Bill Cole's used tires. The time that this second robbery occurred is never put on the supplemental reports. They would be on the Tyler PD reports, which Tyler PD claims they don't have them. Mr. Martinez tells the detectives that he struggled with the robber and that another blackmail suspect assisted the first robber in subduing him. He says that the first robber had used mace or pepper spray to subdue him first before the struggle ensued and the accomplice came in to help out. Lieutenant Waller notes in this report that the robber's can of mace and a ball cap had been recovered from the scene. And Mr. Martinez states that the suspects left in a blue-colored vehicle. So in the second robbery, a few miles south of the first, on the same day, the victim, Juan Martinez, says that a black male about 6 foot tall weighing around 180 pounds dressed in a red and black checked flannel shirt, jeans, and a ball cap, came into his store, asked about tires, and then sprayed him in the face with mace. He fought back, a struggle ensued, 
A second black male came and joined in with the struggle to help subdue him, and then the two men stole $2,200 in cash and fled in a blue car. This was the robbery that was charged as an aggravated robbery, which is a big deal because the first robbery was a simple robbery and comes with a maximum prison sentence of 20 years. Aggravated robbery, on the other hand, comes with a maximum prison sentence of 99 years. These are the two crimes that Kenny Snow was charged with. According to the prosecution, around noon on January 21st, Kenny Snow, wearing a dark-colored ball cap, a green and yellow shirt, dark pants and tennis shoes, sprayed mace in the face of Bill Cole at Bill's used tires and stole $167 from him and fled in a red car. Later that night, the state alleges that Kenny Snow then entered Ricky Dealer used cars and Tyler. Again, he asks about tires. He's now wearing a red and black checked flannel shirt, jeans, and a ball cap. He sprays Juan Martinez in the face with mace, and a fight ensues. An accomplice joins in and assists Kenny in the assault, and the two of them make off with $2,200 in a blue car. I'm sure you're all aware that I already have some preliminary thoughts on this case, but at this point they're just gut feelings and thoughts. So I'm going to keep them to myself until I can get the rest of these documents, hopefully next week while I'm in Tyler, Texas. I need to get my hands on the Tyler Police Department files, and I need to get those court documents and see how all these things line up. By this time next week, I should have a lot more answers. Now we're going to take a quick break to hear about our sponsors, and then we'll get into the allegations that Kenny's made that happened after he was arrested. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On January 30th, 1997, Kenny Snow was arrested for the two robberies we just discussed. As he put it in his first letter to me, this is where the strangeness began. In Kenny's first letter, he spoke about a man named Johnny Johnson. Johnny Johnson is the man who would become Kenny Snow's promotional manager after he is released from jail, and he was also Kenny Snow's parole officer. As I continue to receive more letters from Kenny, I'm getting more information and painting a more clear picture. Snow claims that while he was sitting in jail, Johnson came to visit him and offered to make a deal with him. According to Kenny, Johnson offered to pull some strings to keep him out of prison if he would allow him to be his promotional manager. Remember, Kenny Snow was a professional boxer and at that point in his life was really rising through the ranks. Kenny says that after Johnson left, he was visited by two men, District Attorney David Dobbs and an FBI agent by the name of Dennis Murphy. He says that Dobbs had a proposition for him. There was a man housed in the Smith County Jail by the name of Edward Aitz. In a previous episode, I was pronouncing his name Atez, but it turns out it's pronounced Aitz. Aitz had been arrested for a murder, and he had already received two mistrials. He was sitting in the Smith County Jail trying to get bond, awaiting his third trial. Kenny claims that Dobbs asked him to get a confession from Aitz. He told him that he would place him in the same cell block as Aitz, and that if he was able to get a confession and testify at trial leading to Aitz's conviction, 
that Kenny would be let off on probation. Snow says that he was assured that if he didn't agree, that he would be sentenced to 99 years for the two robberies. Kenny says that he never did get a confession out of Edward Aids, so he made something up. The details of his allegations about how all of this came about are still a little bit unclear. I've gone through the process of getting cleared so that Kenny can call me, and of course we exchange letters back and forth. Unfortunately, a few weeks ago, his cell block went on what they call lockdown. He told me in a letter dated January 1st that it takes about three weeks to shake down his unit, and during that time he wouldn't be able to make any phone calls or probably not even get any letters out. So I started to look through Edward Eight's court files to try to determine what exactly happened with Kenny Snow. I'm going to read an excerpt from an appellate document dated January 31st, 2000. Kenneth Snow of the Smith County Jail testified that the appellant, who was at the time also an inmate, asked Snow to lie on the appellant's behalf in exchange for $1,000. Appellant gave him a handwritten script and asked Snow to memorize it. Snow was to testify that he had witnessed a conversation between the appellant and someone named Francis Johnson, in which Johnson admitted to murdering Eleanor Griffin. Snow agreed to do as the appellate asked, but mailed the script to the district attorney. The script was admitted into evidence as State's Exhibit 130. Snow also testified that another inmate nicknamed Louisiana had been recruited to testify falsely for the appellant. Denise Jarrett, a handwriting expert, testified that in her opinion, State's Exhibit 130 was written by the appellant. Clinton Johnson testified that he had been in jail with Snow and the appellant. Some people called him Louisiana. He stated that no one asked him to lie about anything. So that was Kenny Snow's involvement in Edward Eight's murder trial. He testified that Edward Eight's asked him to lie for him and claimed that he overheard another inmate confess to the crime that Eight's was accused of. And according to the official record, Snow flipped on Eights and turned him in and gave this information to Dobbs. According to Snow, the entire thing was orchestrated by Dobbs. Kenny claims that after Eights was convicted, Dobbs came through with his end of the bargain, with the assistance of Johnny Johnson. Johnson sat on the parole board and was the deciding vote to let Snow off on probation. The way Kenny makes it sound, there was never an official plea bargain. It was a split vote by the parole board that allowed him to stay out of prison. After Kenny got out of jail, Kenny was given 10 years of community supervision, or what's commonly known as probation. He was given the probation on November 12, 1998. Once out, he got back into the gym and started training to fight again. And in telling me this story through his letters, a new character was introduced into this story. And the way Kenny makes it sound, this is the guy that may have been the mastermind behind the whole thing. Kenny worked out at a gym owned by a man named Joe Costello. Before and after these robberies, Joe Costello was Kenny's manager, his trainer. Joe's the one that paid for Kenny's rent and his living expenses. And in Kenny's words, owned businesses all over town in Tyler, Texas. Kenny claims that Costello was very well connected. He says he has friends in the sheriff's department, the police department, and even in the court system. For the next three years, Costello and Johnson had Kenny traveling all over the country fighting, which is really curious because one of the conditions of Kenny's probation was that he was not allowed to leave the state of Texas, and yet he left the state on a regular basis with his promotional manager, who was also his parole officer. Kenny's boxing record shows that he lost 17 fights in a row. This is a big change from before his time in jail. He was on his way up in the boxing world before he was arrested. He was fighting on ESPN, he had knocked out the number two contender in the world, 
He says he was even on track to get a shot at the title. But after jail, he dropped 17 fights in a row. I asked Kenny in a letter what happened. He wrote back and said that the reason he lost all those fights is because he was trying to get away from Johnson and Costello. He claims that he was losing on purpose, because it was costing them money, and he'd hoped that they would drop him, and he'd be free from their clutches. Finally, in 2002, Johnny Johnson's superior took him off of Kenny's case. Kenny says that the superior said that he can't be his parole officer and his promotional manager at the same time. It was a conflict of interest. Kenny was finally assigned a new parole officer. He says that in 2002 he met with her and they started talking about his boxing career. She asked him if he really loved boxing. In his letter he says that he told her that he really just wants to go home. He doesn't want to box anymore. He wants to go home and be with his family. She told him that he couldn't do that because of the conditions of his probation. Kenny says that he asked her not to tell anyone that he said anything about moving. But he believes that she did tell someone. He believes that she mentioned it to Johnson, because just two days later, he was confronted by Costello about it. He says that Costello threatened him and told him that there was no way he was going to quit boxing and there was no way he was leaving Texas. Kenny claims that after that, he started getting harassed by the police. He claims, and these are his words, that Costello had him picked up three times. He was never officially charged, I don't see anything on his court files, but he says that he was held in lockup and told that he would be charged with assaulting an officer. Kenny referred to these as scare tactics. Finally, a little later in 2002, Snow says that he was afraid of what Costello might do to him, and his mother was sick back in Ohio, and he packed up his things and he moved back to Columbus, Ohio to be with his family. He thought that he was finally free of the grasps of Smith County justice. He spent about two years in Ohio before the local police picked him up on the parole violation. He was held for a short period of time in Ohio before he was extradited back to Texas. This was in May of 2004. On May 26 of that same year, the parole board revoked his community supervision and sentenced him to 40 years in prison. And that's where he's been ever since. In prison, Kenny started pulling his own court documents. He was told earlier, and then he saw in the files, that there was DNA evidence collected from both scenes. There was a ball cap, the can of mace, and a blood sample that was taken off the floor at Ricky Dealer used cars by the Tyler Police Department. He had a supplemental report that he sent to me and I put up on the website that describes the collection of the evidence that the blood was taken by Detective Bobby Van Ness, taken to the lab, dried, and put into evidence. So in 2006, Kenny filed a motion to have the DNA tested. He was sure that that DNA evidence would prove his innocence and get him out of jail. The response from the district attorney's office reads as follows. The state has reviewed its records in the above reference case for any physical evidence which might be subject to DNA testing. There is no physical evidence still available for DNA testing. The following physical evidence was collected by the Tyler Police Department during their investigation of this case. A mace container, ball cap, and an unknown blood sample. All items were destroyed on March 29, 2002 by the Tyler Police Department. In addition to the Tyler Police Department's investigation of the defendant, the Smith County Sheriff's Department investigated the defendant for a robbery occurring on or about January 21, 1999. The following physical evidence was collected by the Smith County Sheriff's Department during their investigation. A McGregor black and gray sweatshirt with bloodstains. The Smith County Sheriff's Department is unable to locate the item. This is the letter that put a stop to anyone trying to help Kenny Snow. Tyler P.D. destroyed the one thing that Kenny Snow believed would set him free. 
You heard me last week discuss this briefly with Corey Session. The Texas state law that became effective in 2001 not only allows the convicted the right to have the DNA tested from their crime scenes, but it also requires police agencies to maintain any and all biological evidence until the dismissal of the case. The law specifically states that if someone is out on community supervision, the evidence must be maintained throughout the duration of their community supervision. In 2002, when the Tyler Police Department destroyed the DNA evidence, Kenny Snow was still out on his community supervision. This law that requires the evidence preservation had been in effect since the year before. In a nutshell, the Tyler Police Department clearly violated the Texas state law by destroying that evidence. And Kenny Snow is not the only one that this has happened to. Carrie Max Cook's DNA evidence was destroyed during the exact same time by the exact same police department in the exact same illegal manner. This is that pattern that we were talking about in the last episode. We know for a fact, we have documented proof that in at least two cases, Tyler PD destroyed biological evidence unlawfully. And it's even more suspect when you consider the timing of when this evidence was destroyed. That law that went into effect in 01 is what gave inmates the right to have that DNA tested. And as soon as that law passes, and all these people that are claiming to be innocent sitting in prison now have the absolute by state law right to have their DNA tested, all of a sudden it gets destroyed. And apparently the only response that the Tyler Police Department had at the time was, whoops. And so far there have been no consequences. My next goal is to try to get a log of any evidence that was destroyed around that time and cross-reference it with inmates who have claimed their innocence and especially inmates who have filed a petition to have their DNA tested. One time can be a mistake. Two times can be a coincidence. But three or four times? That's a pattern of misconduct. Kenny's claims seem to be pretty wild and unimaginable. So what I've been trying to do for the last few weeks is to at least nail down the timeline and to see if there's anything that contradicts Kenny Snow's story. Working backward, I was able to confirm that Snow was sentenced to the 40 years on May 26, 2004. His boxing record does show that he had lost 17 fights prior to that, and that his last fight was on November 30, 2002, against a man named Tipton Walker. Kenny won that fight, his last fight. So his claim that he quit boxing in 2002 to get away from Costello, at least in the sense of timeline, checks out. I also was able to confirm that Kenny Snow was housed in the Smith County Jail from January 30, 1997 until November 12, 1998, and Edward Aits was housed in that same jail during that same time period. Aits was sentenced to 99 years in prison on August 13, 1998, and three months later, Kenny Snow was let out of jail and given community supervision. It's also worth pointing out that according to Kenny's sister, Kimberly Raines, who you heard from in episode 201, Kenny told her this entire crazy story, just the way I'm telling it to you now, when he was home living in Ohio, before his probation was violated, when he thought he was a free man and that he was never going back to prison. That's not necessarily evidence, but it's definitely something to consider. So Kenny says that this whole crazy ball got rolling when District Attorney David Dobbs and FBI agent Dennis Murphy came to see him. 
One of the strangest things about this case to me was why would an FBI agent be involved in a simple and aggravated robbery charge in Tyler, Texas? And for that matter, why would the FBI even be involved in the Edward H. case? To answer that question, I went to friend of the show, Jim Clemente, and he was able to put me in touch with the man who has the answers, FBI agent Dennis Murphy. Mr. Dobbs asked me if I would accompany him to the Smith County Jail to interview a fellow, Mr. Snow, who had information regarding the eighth matter. Next week on Truth and Justice. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. I want to thank today's sponsors, Squarespace and Stamps.com. And a special thanks this week to Michael Bussing, who assisted in the research and production of this episode. Like I mentioned earlier, this week I'm making the trip to Tyler, Texas to chase down some of these leads and try to get the documents that I'm missing. I've been advised by several of my legal contacts in Texas to make this trip known publicly. The investigation of this case is awakening giants that have been asleep for many years. We're dealing with police agencies, district attorneys, judges. I'm walking into the town this week that is controlled by these people. I'm going on record here and telling all of you that I will be in Tyler, Texas. I will not be committing any crimes while I'm there. And there is a legitimate concern for my safety. There are several people in the state that are helping me to take precautionary measures while I'm in town. So don't get too concerned. There are boots on the ground that will be watching out for me while I'm there. This is just an announcement that I needed to make before I leave. I want to thank all of you for sticking with me as we've transitioned into this new case. I know it's been a little bit slow going at the beginning, but things are about to get real. I've started putting up some documents on the truthandjusticepod.com website, and there will be many more to come. So keep checking back over the next couple of weeks. If you have any thoughts, theories, or ideas on the case or anything you want to let me know, send that information to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. If you have a case that you'd like me to consider, send those emails to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod or on Facebook at truthandjustice with Bob Ruff. I always look forward to hearing from all of you. Any of you who are on Twitter or Periscope, Turn your notifications on because during my trip, I will probably be doing several periscopes just to document where I'm at and what I'm doing. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.